Hey there, welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Our interview guest today is Nick Ames of The Guardian, who has written some incredible stories, including recently on the Ukraine men's national team, an amazing story ahead of this week's World Cup qualifying playoffs. Before we get going, you can sign up for a subscription to my writing site at grantwall.com. It has all my writing, including magazine-style stories and on-site coverage of the men's and women's game. That's grantwall.com. First off, let's have a little monologue. Chris Whittingham is under the weather this week, so send some positive thoughts his way. I did want to discuss the weekend, and obviously the big game of the weekend was the men's UEFA Champions League final. Real Madrid won, Liverpool nil. Wild game in the sense that, yes, Real Madrid seemed like a team of destiny, and they were that way throughout the whole tournament, really. You know, look at the teams they ended up getting past. PSG, Man City, Chelsea, Liverpool in the end. So you feel like Real Madrid certainly did enough, and Yet, even this final was just a a strange game. You look at expected goals, 2.19 for Liverpool, 0.92 for Real Madrid. Total shots, 24 for Liverpool, 4 for Real Madrid. Shots on goal, 9 for Liverpool, 2 for Real Madrid. And yet, it's Real Madrid that raises the trophy and... You look at this game, and Thibaut Courtois, tremendous performance and goal for Real Madrid. And the goal coming fairly early in the second half, and Vini Jr. gets it. Nice finish, but that goal is made by Fede Valverde and the ball that he sent to Vini Jr. And just a tremendous pass. And if you're Liverpool, you're kind of like, what do we need to do here? Because it seemed like they created chances. They just didn't get great chances, didn't finish. Courtois was terrific. And here we are. And you look at Liverpool's season, and they end up with two trophies from the knockout competitions, FA Cup, League Cup. They finished second by a point in the Premier League to Man City, and they finished second in the UEFA Champions League. And I thought it was cool, though, that they still had a very raucous celebration in Liverpool on Sunday for this team and the two trophies they did win and the tremendous performances they had this season. But it's probably a little disappointing for Liverpool fans that they didn't get at least three trophies because they had the opportunity for four, obviously, and end up with two. But I'll tell you what, I really enjoyed watching Liverpool this season. And they are a team that is, even for neutrals like me, you know, just so captivating. The way they play, the personalities on the team, the manager, Jurgen Klopp. Um, it's, it's really great stuff. And what can you say about Real Madrid? Um, Carlo Ancelotti gets La Liga, gets another trophy with the Champions League. If I were Carlo Ancelotti at this point, I would actually consider resigning because Real Madrid managers don't get any respect. And it would be a great mic drop for him to just say, okay, I'll go out on this. 
because I don't think it's going to get much better for Real Madrid while he's there than this. And very cool celebrations, obviously, today in Madrid for a deserving Real Madrid team. Um, I think we have to talk a little bit about what happened before the game. Start was delayed by half an hour, a little more than half an hour. And I got to admit, I was watching this with my buddies, my friends at Smithfield here in New York, where we watch a lot of big games together. And it's a great outdoor setting. It's really nice. And the feeling I got was a little bit of a sick to my stomach feeling when I saw that the start of the game was delayed. Because we've seen this in decades past, including with, tragically, Liverpool fans. And thank God nobody was seriously hurt or died in this situation. But once again, we have a situation where a major European final, in this case in Paris, you know, last year for the Euros, that final, it was in London at Wembley, where there are significant problems with the way organizers handle security, with the way they handle people. And there's going to be a lot more to come out of this. But if you think organization and security is bad only in certain parts of the world, it's pretty bad. We have two examples now for big finals in Paris and London. So let's hope they find out what happened here um, and get it right in the future. Because people I know who are at this game, Liverpool fans, were really angry about how this was handled. So again, I'm glad that the, the safety in the end, nobody got seriously hurt, but the video that came out was really bad. Organizers, I can't believe that a big European final had any issues after the final at the Euros last year in London. So, um, very disappointed by that. Hope they get it right in the future. And that's about it for my monologue. I wasn't going to stay here too long. Sorry, Chris couldn't join me. I'm sure he will be able to next week. I'm heading to Cincinnati on Monday for Wednesday's U.S. men's national team friendly against Morocco, fellow World Cup team. Looking forward to that one because you've got most of the top U.S. players at this camp in these games. I'm going to go to Kansas City for the game against Uruguay, another World Cup team on Sunday next week. And this becomes a FIFA window now and and pretty exciting. Uh, Only six games left for the U.S. between now and the World Cup, four of them coming in this window. And we'll see if some people like Haji Wright might have an opportunity to stake a claim to the number nine position. He hasn't had any role in the U.S., during World Cup qualifying, and now he's in, we'll get a chance. I still think Jesus Ferreira is going to get an even bigger chance. And we'll see how this U.S. team performs. But um, that's where I'll be over the next week. I'll have coverage on grantwall.com. Hope you consider subscribing to that because it's going really well. we got almost 2,000 paid subscribers now. And really appreciate all your support for all of that. But... Let's go on to our interview with Nick Ames, who 
is such an impressive journalist, and I'm really excited to have him on the podcast talking about mainly the Ukraine men's national team and what they're doing over the next couple of weeks to try and qualify for the World Cup. And we will give it to him now. Our guest now is someone who I find myself saying about more than any other writer, I wish I would have written that story. Nick Ames writes for The Guardian and covers football matches while also writing some of the best feature stories globally about the sport, including recently stories on the Ukraine men's national team, the Africa Cup of Nations in Cameroon, and FC Sheriff in Transnistria. Nick, it's great to talk to you. Thanks for coming on the show. It's a pleasure, Grant. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, there's a lot to talk about here, and, and I want to start with Ukraine because uh, this podcast is coming out on Monday, two days before Ukraine's game against Scotland in World Cup qualifying. And your stories with the national team of Ukraine, with Dinamo Kiev, uh, with uh, Alexander Zinchenko, Dario Serna, you've done a lot now in recent months. And they're actually in a a position where the Ukraine national team, if they beat Scotland, and then if they were to beat Wales, would land in the World Cup playing against the United States on opening day of the tournament. What did you learn spending time with the Ukraine national team recently? I learned, um, I learned a lot. It, it was, um, at, it was at, at their training camp in Slovenia um, that they've been, been based at more or less for the last two or three weeks, um, courtesy of um, Cheferin, the, the, um, the UEFA um, president, who is, of course, Slovenian. Um, beautiful training complex in the, um, in the foothills of the Alps, really nice. Um, I learned that they really, really want this. I mean, there is a lot of awful tragic stuff going on back home that I think we all know about very well and it's easy for them to, and for them to ask themselves maybe and for us as media to ask ourselves is is football is world cup qualification important does it does it matter on the scale of things and I was interested in that question because I've spoken to quite a few Ukrainian players from from different levels of the game in previous weeks and some of them were along the lines of we don't want to talk about football at all. Even Alexander Zinchenko, um, who I'd interviewed two or three weeks previously, hadn't really wanted to look ahead to the World Cup games. Now, this squad gathering, when I attended it, it was domestic-based players only because the players such as Zinchenko, such as Yarmolenko, players like this who, um, who are based abroad, obviously hadn't finished their seasons yet. So the squad's composition is, is changing slightly as we speak now, as, as those players filter in. Um, but the, 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 the vibe was, was totally, we need this, the country needs it, the country needs something to smile about. And it was very interesting listening to Taras Stepanenko, who's one of the um, one of the senior players on the team talking about how um, soldiers on, on the front line write to him and write to them every single day saying, please give us this, please, please give us this bit of hope, this bit of recognition, this thing to smile about while we're all suffering here. So it is important. Um, and I think also it's important to remember that, um, you know, what Russia is trying to do in Ukraine is erase Ukrainian culture no more no less really i i, I think i said it in in, in my piece from slovenia and I, and I think as you and i both know from our travels like what is a football team if not a 
an, inter an international football team, if not an expression, a representation of a culture, of a country's hope, of a country's ambition, of, of how a country expresses itself and everything around it. So I think that is all tied in to what, um, to what the, the, um, the feeling was in the camp. How did your process work on that story? How did you get it arranged? Uh, and then, you know, you had some very good, it appears, one-on-one -on -one access to the coach of the Ukraine national team, to various players. Uh, you know, how many days were you there? How did that all work? Yeah, it's there for probably two, two four days. Um, I was staying in Ljubljana, the capital, but the team hotel was about half an hour away. So I did a lot of... Um, Again, what journalists get very used to, waiting in hotel lobbies, waiting for the right people to pop in and out, you know. But uh, um, Ukraine's press officer, um, their, um, their media officer, um, Alexander, was basically incredibly helpful when I first raised it with him about a month before. I, um, I said to him and a couple of other people at their FA, could we do a day in the life of the squad when they meet? And they've never done something like this before. International teams don't, especially in in sort of in, in Europe anyway, don't tend to give that kind of access. Um, so they went away and thought about it, talked about it, and agreed to it. So spent a couple of days around the hotel, watching training, um, some good chats, as you say, with the coach Petrikov, who is a very old, um, old school kind of guy with quite a dry humour as well, sort of plunged into a situation that he'd never ever asked for. Um, and. And I think he came out with a good line, which was, if we qualify for, um, for Qatar, I've lived my life for a reason. He sort of sees it as a kind of almost destiny to do this for his country now. And then spoke to quite a few senior players. And one thing that struck me as well is that while the, while the footballers from Shakhtar Donetsk and Dinamo Kiev, the, the two biggest teams in Ukraine, had been able to, to leave the country and play friendly matches for charity in the previous few weeks. None of these players have been in an ivory tower for the duration of the invasion. All of them had, even if it was just in the first two or three weeks, been affected directly, physically and materially. So, for example, um, I spoke to um, Sidorchuk, one of the midfielders um, from Dynamo Kiev, um, and he was telling me that in the, that in the opening week or two of, um, of the invasion, him and three or four other teammates who live in, I'm sorry, three or four other Ukraine teammates who, um, who live in Kyiv were living in his car park beneath his apartment for, for the opening stages of the invasion. And he showed me photographs of their kids sleeping in car boots, them and their wives, you know, in sleeping bags on, on the floor. Now, people have been through and are going through far, far, far worse than that. But... Even the footballers, even the country's most famous players have, have been forced, you know, to do things that nobody would want to do and live in ways nobody would want to live. It's, it's incredible stuff that uh, you got them to share with you and just the, even the idea of, you know, him, you know, players showing you photographs from their phone of what they went through. And it's, it's such a, a traumatic experience for so many people, including the people on this team. And I guess I would ask you, how how realistic is it to think that Ukraine is going to be ready to play soccer um, against Scotland with so much on the line? Because obviously, Scotland and Wales haven't been to a World Cup in a really long time. They really want to get there 
is 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 it even possible do you think it's going to be very very difficult if we're honest i think so i mean the fortunate thing is that if we, if we say that the squad the final incarnation of the squad will be about 50% Dinamo and Shakhtar players and about 50% for players that that, um, that we know like Yarmolenko, Zinchenko, the, the, the foreign-based players, Mikolenko from Everton, players like this. Um, the Dinamo and Shakhtar players have at least been in a football environment, in a, in a hard training environment for a month or so. Um, the players from the Premier League and elsewhere will have been playing competitive football at a very, very high level. We we saw Zinchenko set up a, a vital goal, didn't we, for for for, for Rodri, I think it was to uh, to help settle the title on Sunday. But it doesn't it doesn't change the fact that they're coming in from from a bit of a standing start. They've been friendlies against a couple of club sides. There was a friendly against I think it was at Mönchengladbach a few days after I visited. They played one or two games in Italy as well since against club sides. They've they've been hoping to play this week against I think DR Congo and another African team. Those plans I think have fallen through. So they're going to have come into the Scotland game with no. No meaningful match action because I don't think a friendly against a club side frankly counts except as, as a bit of a kick about to practice your shape and keep your fitness ticking over. But there'll be no intensity. And I know Petrikov, the coach, was very worried about this when I spoke to him. He, he was like, look, we're coming in from, from a standing start. So in that way, the odds are against them. But this is football and my mind can do fascinating things. And these guys are very 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 motivated to an extent that you you and i probably can't describe or even articulate so when um, when they get out there maybe a bit of rust or lack of match sharpness or whatever it, it may well be totally offset by the adrenaline and the feeling of what they're going for and the motivation they've been receiving from soldiers on the front line like i said what what higher motivation could you want than to perpetuate and maintain the culture of your country? So, look, they're up against two two good sides, full of players who are, well, hopefully two good sides if, if they beat Scotland, um, full of players who play in, in the UK mainly at a very fast tempo, whose seasons are just finishing now. You would say they're the underdogs, even if man for man they've got outstanding players. But... Strange things happen, especially in situations like this. That's a very long way of saying, um, I don't know. I think all bets are off. Do you do these interviews in English or some other language when you do your national team interviews with the Ukrainians? So I speak some Russian, um, although it's sort of high school Russian, so not um, not at all fluent, but it comes in, in useful. So in this instance, it was a bit of a mixture of the two, to okay. be honest. Um, and also the the uh, press officer was occasionally giving a bit of clarity and translation help too. So it was a fusion of two or three different things, to be honest. But uh, but um, but being able to understand a bit of Russian and and definitely frame a question in Russian does help. How do you try to approach your job? Because you're very busy covering soccer games, but you're also finding ways to travel and do these very compelling feature stories. Yeah, it's um. There's two strands to it, as you say, because um, for me, I I live in North London. I cover a lot of Premier League football, especially, particularly Arsenal seems to be the the um, the beat I end up on mostly, which, as we know, is a 
really dull and, <laughs> and, 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 and certainly the top four running while doing a, a lot of these other stories on, on Ukraine for example has been quite a lot of juggling but you have your regular kind of schedule and then between that what I'm often trying to do to be honest is look out for the next international break and find out and, and find out what is happening look for an angle is it is it a game? Is it a country that's got an unusual story that might be worth covering? Is there some geopolitical clash where we can explain the politics or, or something wider through the football, which I think is something that the football can do is, and is something that I try and base a lot of my work on. Um, yeah, is, is, there, is, is there a story that would get a bit of airtime over the international break that might not during, during the regular season? So... That's definitely something that I look out for. But to be honest, with with the Ukraine stories recently, in in particular, it is such a big story and such an important story, and so important that these stories, I think, are, are told in whichever way, whether it's by sports media, whether it's by news media, whether it's by any other kind of journalist. That I've been quite happy to, and fortunately, my editors have been quite happy um, to let me go out and pursue these stories, even if it means missing a a big EPL game. You know, at the African Cup of Nations, you traveled 500 miles on an off day in the tournament to visit a UN camp. Could you explain what that story was about? Yeah, of course. Um, so this was the, the Minawal um, refugee camp, um, right in the, in the far north of Cameroon, which is quite near to the Nigerian border. Now, that's where the, the insurgent Boko Haram group have been causing terror for years and years and um, especially over in Nigeria so there have been a lot of people fleeing over the border and many refugee camps set up in the north of um, of Cameroon to keep these people safe. Obviously these are displaced people, they're not living in great conditions but they've fled their home villages often in Nigeria because, because people were being murdered, massacred, killed. Um, very, very sad. Um, and I have a, con- um, a contact at, at the UN Refugee um, Department and I happened to be over in Cameroon at the time and he said to me, well, you should come up and look at this because there's a girls' football team um, that had been formed of, of girls from their early teens to late teens um, doing some fantastic work, playing some fantastic stuff in really poor conditions but really showing, in- showing incredible spirit and why don't you come up and see them? So I did, um, and it was quite humbling. You know, there was, it was a um, a, um, a squad of of girls um, with hardly any meaningful kit or shoes or anything like that, which we've been trying to put right. Hopefully, I've had a lot of offers since from from people to help with that, which is one of the great things about journalism. People can um, read your piece, and then hopefully you can try and make a difference. Um, and yeah, just um, just just heard their stories, and the main the main message of in that from people was we play football to help us forget um, what has happened to us. In the past, football is a kind of mental displacement, a kind of way of doing something constructive, a way to make yourself feel good, a way not to be haunted by by the terrible things that these um, that these young girls have seen. And they were coached by a very lovely gentleman who was so so good with them and had been through his own highs um so it was really inspiring to meet them tell their story and and yeah hope hopefully um organize some way for them to be equipped better going forward 
how do you find out about a story like that and and without giving away your secrets how do you go about finding good stories in general it's just sometimes luck it's, it, it's just sometimes i mean as um, as you know yourself in this job you have to be open to to, to talking to people or talking to talking to anyone to making contacts and and then checking in on them and, and not forgetting them and and just sort of make sure you know as many people as possible and in in this particular case it was um it was a French guy who I who I met in Gabon at the Cup of Nations in it must have been 2017 and he was a freelance journalist then but he he happened to get a job working for the UN in Yaoundé in Cameroon so when I went out to Yaoundé for for the tournament this year I got in touch with him and he he just so happened to to tell me what was happening up in the far north so you know that's that's not um, not the most interesting or, or glamorous story but it it sort of shows you that you can get these things through people you met a few years ago just sort of having a chance conversation or, or a chance um, reunion with and it's it's all about building up um, up your network and just just making connections but also meaningful friendships right because there is so, there's so much that you can learn every day from the people that you visit and the people that you meet in all corners of the world I should tell our listeners that you helped me a lot when I went to Transnistria to do a story on FC Sheriff last October. You were one of the few English-speaking journalists who went there before that, and you connected me with a few people, uh, helped provide some great advice, which I really do appreciate. What was your experience reporting your story on Sheriff? Oh, that was a... As um, as 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 you saw yourself, it's a... A highly unusual place. Um, it's a, um, a Transnistria um, is is a slice of the of the former USSR, if you like, in in in, in inside modern day Europe. It kind of felt to me, um, Tiraspol, like a, a bit like a provincial Russian city would now. Um, very hard to hard to get good cell reception. The money was um, very very difficult to change. There was a lot of old Soviet ephemera everywhere and there were people as well who found it hard to define who they are where they're from like I I remember speaking um, speaking to a big big sheriff fan called called Rodion who is um features quite prominently in the article that I did and and he said I I don't know how to answer the the question where are you from if a if a western english american person asked me because it's so complicated and i don't even know and you know i've 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 got a friend um quite a good friend from um from Tiraspol as well and she said that she's recon- she reconciled in her head and this was before the invasion by russia of ukraine but she reconciled that she was a third um moldovan a third russian a third ukrainian because if she says she's Transnistrian, what is Transnistria to a lot of people? It's not a recognised republic. I mean, republic. So there's a lot tied up in that. And then the football experience, of course, um, it's a gleaming stadium and a gleaming training ground in a in a quite <laughs> in a quite bizarre situation where you've got petrol pumps and supermarkets with sheriff branding. You've got a sheriff radio station, I think. Every Everything in the country has got the hand of this company, Sheriff, which also owns the um, the football club behind it. And I, I mean, we could go into, into this in quite a lot of depth. It's fairly nefarious in, 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 in many ways. It's kind of a company running a sort of quasi-state, running a football team. It's... Um, 
fascinating. And obviously the team did very well in the Champions League as well. In the game that I went to, they, they beat Shakhtar. And then a couple of weeks later, in the big one at the Bernabeu, they, they beat Real Madrid, which I, I guess Real might be laughing at by the time this pod goes out if they've beaten, <laughs> beaten Liverpool. But back then, it was a very different time. It's pretty incredible it's still the same season that the Sheriff won at Real Madrid because <laughs> not many teams can say that this season. Um, you know, what are some of the most far-flung locations you've been to reporting stories in your career? I would say, um, I mean, if we're, if we're looking at AFCONs even, I think, um, I think Equatorial Guinea was a, a very interesting one in, in, in 2015. Um, because Equatorial Guinea is is a country that, as a tourist, you you just can't go to. It's a it's a tiny little country lodged between Gabon and and Cameroon that somehow found itself stepping in at the last minute to host an Afcon. When I think it was, uh, I think it was Morocco pulled out at the time, and someone always pulls out or tries to pull out at the last minute. Um, and that was a fascinating place to be because you felt that you were somewhere that people just cannot go, or almost a sort of North Korea of Africa. Um, and and the, there was a couple of incidents, for example, at the semi-final when there was a bit of a revolt in, in the stands and police choppers flying over your head and, and that kind of thing. And it, it felt very, very dystopian. So that's one of the strangest places that I've been to for sure. Um, and then, um, I, um, I mean, even in Europe, not so much strange places maybe but strange situations for example i i don't know whether any any listeners will remember um the drone game between serbia and albania in 2014 um yes. in the euro 2016 qualifiers and I, I i just happened to be there that day um as i think i was the 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 only kind of english journalist in that stadium and i i'll, I'll never forget the way it totally went off that night and the the pressure and the stress but also the buzz of reporting on that all night afterwards um so you sort of you just end up in such a a wide variety of places reporting on such a a range of stories but with that serbia v albania story um, story for example you can go to the game and have an idea that oh i've I've got a a geopolitical contest here there's so much history behind it but you can never know what's going to happen and what you're going to be ended up with um a couple of hours later you know couple questions more here with Nick Ames. Really appreciate your time. Um, what is your sense of doing stories ahead of the Qatar World Cup on that tournament? Yeah, so it's, um, it's, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because we have to look at the, the intrinsic footballing aspect of it and also the, you know, the human rights aspect that we cannot escape and I, and I think and I know that in our Guardian coverage that's, that's going, to, going to feature prominently in all strands of what we do um, we do have some excellent journalists who, who, who focus mainly on that so I think for me in, in the run up I, I may do one or two specifically Qatar related things maybe, maybe something human rights based but I, I would also look at the, at the purely football aspect try and do a few deep dives into one or two of the teams of a few interesting players or stories or, or managers or, or interesting contextual factors that you can go maybe go to a place and have a look behind but 
I think we all have to to, um, to report responsibly on it, you know, and responsibly on it. I think um, the human rights factor clouds this World Cup in in a way that we cannot ignore. Um, it's also a football tournament, and we have to. And on one level, we treat it like that, but. I think they both go um, go together here. So I think that's going to be at the forefront of everyone's mind when they're writing about this tournament, even a straight match report. I would also say that The Guardian has done tremendous reporting on human rights in Qatar, including in connection to the World Cup. Pete Patterson has done just so many gold standard stories over the last decade that I would suggest folks check out uh, the stories that he's done as well. Um, What's kind of your career story before The Guardian? How do you get into this business? Yeah, do you know what? When people say, oh, can you give me some advice on how you got to The Guardian, for example, I just say, don't listen to me. Because it, it, it always... But I think most people would kind of say that. It, it, you know, paths to paths in, in this industry are far more haphazard, I think, than, than a lot of people expect. But for me, I, I left university... Um, worked for a little bit on my local newspaper in Ipswich, UK. I'm I'm a big Ipswich Town fan, by the way. Um, not doing nice. too well these days. Um, so I worked there for a little bit. Worked for a new a small news agency in London. And then, long story short, I I quit and got a job at um, Arsenal Football Club um, on their club media. Um, this was in the late 2000s, so it was a bit. It was a time just before club media was more about social media. You were still kind of able to to do big interviews and that kind of thing. And it was around the time when Wenger was at Arsenal. They had captains like Fabregas and Van Persie and Gallas, and you got to sit down and you know do some quite interesting stuff with some quite interesting players at, at quite a lot of length as well working for the match day program and and, and and the club magazine which sadly i don't think exists anymore um so that was a great grounding for me in being around the football environment being in a in an environment where you were comfortable around players doing long interviews that kind of thing um now in in the end and this is not a slight on club media at all. For me, it was a bit restrictive. Like I, I was going off and doing the occasional freelance bit here and there, but I wanted to be seeing, you know, seeing a wider view on things from the outside. Um, so after a few years there, I went freelance and did a lot of work um, for ESPN FC mm-hmm. um, and, and also for The Guardian, both of whom were very, very good and generous and open-minded in, in backing a lot of the ideas I wanted to do and also one or two of the things we've spoken about already um, actually like the Afghans Serbia-Albania game thing, and things like this um, so I was fortunate that way and then I've been on the staff of The Guardian for the last couple of years You mentioned this about, I always ask people if they have any advice for young people who want to do what you do sounds like maybe not <laughs> <laughs> oh no, um, I've got advice. I just, I just, I just, uh, I just wouldn't, wouldn't say that I've had a clear pathway um, toward um, here. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's not been planned out. Do this, do this, do this. But, it, but in terms of advice, be open, be inquisitive, talk to people, ask, um, ask people things. Just um, um, always, always think that the person that you're talking to has got something that you can learn from. Definitely, um, and. Don't be afraid to take a punt sometimes on 
if you if, um, if you see a trip that you want to do and if you've got the means to do it which is, is not always easy especially for young people if you see a, see a trip that you want to do a club that you want to visit something like that a country you, um, that you want to go to where you see a story that you think no one's covered try and do it and try to write try to write to some editors about it tell people that you're out there show people that, that you're someone who is active and looking looking for new angles and new stories and wants to get out there and get moving i just think be an open book um which i think is important nick ames is a writer for the guardian you should check out all of his stories including on the ukraine national team as it heads into world cup qualifying nick thanks so much for coming on the show it's a pleasure thanks for having me Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Nick Ames as well as producer Chris Whittingham. You can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. See you next time.